KFC has found the right recipe for a comeback, and it includes ingredients like a Curdle Sanders bearskin rug. Hello, I'm Jonathan Mays, executive editor at Restaurant Business Magazine, and in this week's edition of A Deeper Dive, I talk with Kevin Hockman, president of KFC in the U.S. and a key architect in the chain's turnaround. Kevin talks about the importance of marketing in the company's comeback, and in particular, the guerrilla marketing the chain has become known for in the past few years. That begins with the rotating kernels ads that started five years ago, and includes things like the fried chicken fire logs they sold last year, and more recently, the Sanders bearskin rug offered as a contest prize around Valentine's Day. Kevin also talks about the chain's pivot to growth after years of decline, and the company's focus on product innovation. And later, we talk about another chain that has enjoyed a marketing-based renaissance of late. But first, here's Kevin Hockman. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here. So, uh, Kevin, um, the uh, Colonel Sanders bearskin rug, what are you feeding your marketing team? Well, the, you know, part of the challenge that we have in fast food and pretty much any marketing, you know, I spent 18 years at Procter & Gamble, and it's a similar challenge is the customer is being bombarded with messages everywhere. And, and it all, um, it's got to be exciting, and they don't have a big span of attention. I, you know, I read somewhere a few months ago that our customer now has the uh, shorter life uh, or shorter attention span than a goldfish. So we have to uh, be able to break through, um, create news, and sometimes that requires doing some things that are a little bit bizarre, and some people understand it and some people don't, but the reality is we get tons of coverage on that stuff. And I couldn't be more proud of the things the marketing team has been able to do, and the bearskin one is uh, bearskin rug is certainly one of them. Yeah, and the uh, I think uh, this morning we I wrote about the um, hot tub, and we've had the chicken, the scented chicken log, the scented the fire log that smelled like <laughs> herbs and spices. Uh, going back, you've had a GPS with Colonel Sanders. I mean, all these sorts of things. Is it sort of important in today's, I mean, is it important in today's market? I mean, you have to do these sorts of things to get people's attention? Yeah, well, I, I think absolutely that if you're not interesting or you're not creating some type of uh, emotion in the customer, you're just basically going to be forgotten. You know, our CEO talks about indifference is um, literally the worst thing you can do in marketing. Try to evoke some kind of emotion um, to, to elicit a response. I will tell you there is a method to everybody's madness mm-hmm. on these things. So it really starts with understanding your brand's kind of DNA and the core of the brand. What are the things it stands for? What are the things the customer uh, recognizes you for? And then all of these stunts, believe it or not, are some type of iteration of that DNA, mm-hmm. uh, obviously done a little bit more bizarre ways than maybe even the kernel intended, uh, but they're all still squarely on that DNA. So, for example, um, what was one of the examples that you gave me earlier? Um, the GPS device. The, the GPS device, mm-hmm. right? So that's a great example of Colonel's voice. The Colonel had this uh, very pragmatic voice where he'd talk about, you know, if it's time, there's time to lean, there's time to clean. And mm-hmm. they were really, it was really about lessons about not taking shortcuts and doing things the right way. And in essence, that was his voice on that GPS tape, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously done in a very humorous way where how can a GPS tape actually take you anywhere other than the one place it's been taped? So um, obviously there's always a wrinkle on these things. Mm-hmm. But they're all grounded in some kind of inherent brand truth, which is what I get excited about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it doesn't really, I mean, this is sort of, I mean, I, th- I think that the one of the good parts about KFC, a brand like KFC, is that because it has, Colonel Sanders was really, really big into marketing. So it's really, I mean, that's pretty important brand heritage for somebody like Oh, KFC. absolutely. You know, I, 
I love that you asked that. Um, the Colonel was a consummate, you know, he was, we call him the number one chicken salesman in the world. In fact, there was an mm-hmm. ad in our archives that he literally called himself the number one chicken salesman in the world. And a lot of folks don't realize that whole getup, you know, he had this white suit and the cane and the glasses. That was all what I call a superhero costume with the sole purposes of selling more fried chicken. So, mm-hmm. in fact, the Colonel suit, um, when he first created the suit, it was actually black. And then he realized it didn't show up well on TV, and he turned it to white. So, you know, this was this has nothing to do with um, the time period that he was born in, et cetera. I mean, he was born, you know, 40 years after kind of the fashion that he wore was in vogue. So um, it was all a very deliberate act. In fact, the last 30 years of his life, he was not seen um, in public without his superhero suit on, right? So uh, very much the, the history of the brand was not just these amazing recipes that you couldn't get anywhere else that... You know, you had to go to a Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurant to experience, um, but it also was the lore and the excitement that you know Colonel Sanders brought to the party. Right, and you have an entire museum downstairs, you know, sort of devoted to Colonel Sanders and his life, and a lot of that. And uh, you know, I was looking at this earlier. I mean, he had his own marketing products. He had records. He had some candy, and you know, I mean, his his his. You know, picture was in a lot of different places and, and that sort of thing. He really did a lot. Oh yeah, you know, I, I, you know, first of all, you're absolutely right. So he was, you know, our our advertising agency, Widen and Kennedy, that was the group that brought back the Colonel. Uh, they have a uh, vision of what they want to do with brands. It's called branded everything. And the idea is in this cluttered world where our customers not waiting for a 30 second TV ad from us, we have to find ways to meet the customer where they are, entertain them. And in doing so, you know, embed our messages into that. And so their vision is branded everything, which is exactly what the colonel believes. So he had, you know, branded, you know, records and songs that he did. Um, we find all kinds of merch, you know, things that young kids call merch today. He was the king of merch. And, mm-hmm. You know, he had he had bling. He had, you know, 200 custom canes. And he had a Super Bowl ring that actually had fried chicken on it instead of it being a Super Bowl ring, right? He was the king of bling before there was even a word. Um, and it's been absolutely critical to the Colonel's success, and it's been a big piece of our turnaround is this idea of literally branding everything um, using this Colonel world. So we have 11 herbs and spices, finger licking good, the bucket, and the Colonel's you know, vestige, and his cane, and his glasses. All of these things are differentiated propositions versus, you know, in, in what's quite frankly a sea of sameness in the industry. And mm-hmm. it's allowed us to get, you know, you'd say, well, how does that actually deliver some kind of rate of return on your advertising? You know, our ads um, have recall uh, about 40% more than the average in a, of a QSR because of things like red and white stripes and finger licking good and the kernel, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So does that sell chicken sandwiches? Absolutely. I mean, the, the, you know, marketing 101 or advertising 101 is if you don't remember the ad, mm-hmm. how can it ever convert you to do, do something, right? So if you're at the top of the funnel, which is getting more people to remember your ad and then linking it to your brand, obviously you're going to have a much better return on investment on your advertising. And we see it in all of our metrics in terms of you know, recall of the brand, is a brand on the way up, you know, things that are important to brand, to building the brand over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, the U.S. restaurant market is pretty saturated, and it's really hard, I think, to break through, you know, all these marketing messages that are out there just hitting you hard every single day with this and that, and, you know, we have social media and that sort of thing. And I think it's a challenge for brands today to sort of break through all that clutter and, and, and to get through that, and um, you know, sort of, sort of requires this sort of thing. Yeah, you know, I, I would agree with that 100%. The, um, you know, the thing that we always talk about is we want to do things that nobody else has done before. Mm-hmm. 
so that they get covered and they get passed along. If it's, it's, we say it's not worth doing if it's not shareable, right? Mm-hmm. So when we do things like the Colonel Robocop, where you know, half of America is like, this is amazing. It's the original Robocop that uh, I loved, and he's now protecting this crazy secret recipe with obviously the message of this recipe is you can't get it anywhere else, right? Mm-hmm. Embedded into that story versus you know the other half are like, I don't understand what they're doing. But the reality is we're breaking through, we're creating conversation, and the most important thing you can do in marketing is be top of mind. So mm-hmm. when I'm hungry, where am I going to go? And is KFC in that consideration set? Has that worked for everybody out there? Obviously not, right? But it's certainly um, generating considerable uh, consideration when you look at, you know, is this a brand that you'd consider for lunch or dinner? That's gone up skyrocketing, mm-hmm. especially with younger people. Yeah. I think if you go back five years ago, and as I recall when, when, when the initial kernel ads first started coming out, I think that franchisees would tell you, that one of the great, one of the things that they liked about it is that people were talking about the brand for the first time in a long time. Um, and, and you know, you've been able to continue that. I mean, people are still talking about KFC. Frankly, if I, from people, you know, outside of the industry, friends of mine from outside of the industry, I, I would say I hear about things KFC is doing from them more than any other brand. Hmm. Uh, which, you know, and I, obviously that's not a scientific sample, but it, it tells me that, you know, what you're doing is working. Um, because not everybody, shockingly enough, just comes to me and asks me about things that restaurant brands are doing. But, you know, I, I, I definitely heard about the bearskin rug, and I heard about the fire log uh, from people outside of the brand. Yeah, so that you know, that's really, you can't see it on the podcast for your audience, but I'm smiling when you say that. <laughs> um, there's a lot of effort and deliberacy that goes into swinging for the fences. And mm-hmm. sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And, you know, part of my job, you know, as the president and formerly when I was the chief marketing officer is understanding how do we take risks? How do we manage it within a, you know, a finite budget, right? We can't take, you know, a bunch of risks and they all, they all kind of crap out. Something have to work, right? And how do we manage that in the context of also being able to invest in the things that we know drive sales, which are, you know, TV ads still are the number one thing that drives sales and obviously digital is becoming more and more of a piece of that equation too, and the thing that I think we've we've accepted internally here, but we've also brought our franchisees along and mm-hmm. they trust us too, is that as long as we are um, very responsible in understanding whether things worked and what do they deliver to the bottom line and what do they deliver to the brand metrics and we report on them and we learn and get better, we can take some swings and miss, right? Mm-hmm. And because we're able to do that, right, we can start breaking through. You know, if you don't take risks, how is it? How can you possibly uh, become exceptional versus your peers in terms of creating attention and creating awareness? If you know, there's you know, for every one of the bearskin rugs that you probably have heard about, there's probably one that you haven't heard about, right? Mm-hmm. That didn't get traction. And as long as we're responsible with the funding that we you know we are uh, given from the franchisees to invest in the business and do a good job of it, and then and then really showcase what have we learned when we make a when we make a mistake, we we continue to get more and more trust from those from our key stakeholders. So. Uh, so when you said that, I smile. It's something I'm very proud of, the fact that we've been able to break through and continue this on a pretty consistent run and continue to get support from the folks that, you know, obviously finance this. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to when, when, when the Colonel ad, the, the Colonel campaign first started. Um, can you talk a little bit about what, you know, what was the, how did that, um, uh, what was the genesis of that particular campaign and, because um, that was, and if I recall correctly, that was, at the time was a big risk. And, and there were those of us, and I probably was one of them, that was pretty skeptical at first mm-hmm. about uh, roving kernels. What are you guys talking about? 
talk a little bit about what was the thinking behind that ad and how that worked. Well, so it all started with the before the ad. So we, had, you know, I was telling this advertising agency, Widen and Kennedy, and I had worked with these guys when I was a P and G on a brand called Old Spice, and a lot of, especially younger guys, know their ads, right? It's kind of, they're kind of wacky, bizarre. In fact, you probably see a lot of similarities in some of the Old Spice ads, as you will on the KFC ads. And when we decided to, to really figure out a new positioning and find our North Star as a brand, we brought these guys along to help us with that. And they're kind of experts in finding the DNA of brands that had, you know, had their heyday decades ago, lost their way a little bit, and then how do we get them back on track, right? And so the first thing we did with them was first year before we did any advertising was literally identifying what are the things that make this brand so darn terrific, mm-hmm. right? So they clued us in on the, the core the core essence of the brand is the idea of a real meal made the hard way. So the idea is if mom or dad didn't have time to cook and put you know, a meal on the table for their family, at least I know the folks that I'm getting my food from aren't taking shortcuts, right? So... Mm-hmm. Um, so if I have to take shortcuts, I know that KFC is not taking shortcuts, and that's what the hard way means. And the hard way actually came from the colonel. The colonel has a manifesto, and it, the hard way is essentially the idea of doing things the right way, which, you know, in our world is, you know, in a world of fast food and QSR, we still takes us 25 minutes to take chickens from U.S. farms that are antibiotic-free and mm-hmm. hormone and steroid-free, and we bread them in the back of the restaurants. So they're delivered fresh. We bread them in the back of the restaurants. We fry them. It takes 25 minutes to do that. We let them rest, and then... You don't know that as a customer. It just shows up in your bucket and shows up in your in your you know your box meal, and that is the core DNA of the brand, which is the idea that we are going to be a home meal replacement that you actually feel good about. You don't feel like you just gave up and you know you found something that everybody loves fried chicken, whether you're a kid or an adult, and it's made the proper way. and And so I don't feel like I'm making a sacrifice, right? So that's the core DNA and the core promise of the brand. Now the brand has this unbelievable character. Mm-hmm. That nobody really remembered, which is this colonel was he was he was a little crazy. Can you imagine a guy at the age of sixty five takes his social security check to go license his recipe door to door, eventually hits it big with this, you know, superhuman outfit called Colonel Sanders, mm-hmm. right? And he was really crazy about selling fried chicken. You know, you'd ask him, Hey Colonel, what's the weather? And he'd be like, It's fried chicken eating weather, right? We found a record, believe it or not, in the archives. 200 different days of the year of the colonel telling you why it's a great day for Kentucky Fried Chicken, right? And it's like 200 days of the year, it'd be like election day. Whether you're a Democrat or Republican, no matter what you are, you always win, go for my Kentucky Fried Chicken. And he'd run that on election day, you know, on a radio station, and you'd fill in, you know, where your restaurant was on the end of the, of the radio spot. So mm-hmm. the end of the day, I mean, the, the DNA of the brand was about real meals the hard way, and you have this character, this feisty, over-the-top, all-American chicken salesman that will do anything, include dressing up like this crazy cartoon character to sell you a bucket of his chicken, right? Once you get to that DNA, you start saying, what does the restaurant look like, right? What do we name our products? Do we have the core items, you know, represented in a way that we're proud of, right? What do the uniforms look like, right? What does our advertising look like? What does our PR stunts look like, et cetera? And a lot of the things that we've done that people think are so crazy were actually just reboots of what the colonel did. So I remember John Y. Brown, who was, um, he was essentially the governor, who eventually became the governor, but he orchestrated the buyout from the, from, mm-hmm. from the colonel. This was decades ago. He's still alive. And he when we came out with that first colonel ad, so I'm going to get back to your question now. <laughs> we came out to the first colonel ad, and one of them was um, the colonel with this mandolin band. So, you know, for your, your viewers now are listening on their computer, they can Google... Uh, Colonel Mandolin Band, and out will come a record 
of the colonel surrounded by a bunch of elementary and high school kids dressed up in colonel suits um, in a band that they, they, and they played, you know, gospel music on, right? Uh, with the colonel front and center in the chair. We recreated that in an ad that where the colonel sings about the $5 fill-up and all the great value in it, and John Y. Brown comes out and he's like, this is ridiculous. The colonel never had a mandolin band, and in fact, he in fact did, and we have proof of it, right? Now, is everything, you know, 100% true to what the colonel... No, a lot of it's been inspired by it, but a lot of it is actually very much true, and we've recreated ads... In the, mm-hmm. in the spirit of the colonel. So at the end of the day, you know, all, all this stuff with the with bringing back the colonels, it's all kind of based on what the colonel originally did. Um, and, you know, when we were deciding on that campaign in particular, we had three options. One was bring back the colonel the way we did. The second one was um, we were going to bring back a, a young millennial colonel mm-hmm. called Colonel Paul, who, um, if you've ever seen the Star Wars films, you have uh, Luke Skywalker... Um, it, Obi-Wan Kenobi mm-hmm. is in his head and you know Luke's going to be the next Jedi it was the same idea it was Colonel's in poor Colonel oh. Paul's head and he was going to become the next Jedi right to sell the fried chicken you know past the Colonel's time on earth and then the third was a talking chicken that um, was taught by the Colonel to speak and talk like the Colonel and take over his empire I think that was a little too bit, too too far away right so we ended up starting with this you know the actual Colonel and then um, I remember I remember we launched the thing and some people were really excited about it. Some people were like, what have you guys done, right? But the sales grew immediately. Mm-hmm. And we saw, literally before we ever turned on TV ads, it was a YouTube ad only, and the business started responding, right? Um, and we got really excited about this. And three weeks after that launch, we had to make a decision on the next promotional window. We're going to go shoot it. And are we going to use the existing Colonel Daryl Hammond or the, this agency that had this idea of like, maybe we should rotate the colonels? be like James Bond. And I remember I remember looking at my ad guy. He was sitting right where you are. And I said, are you crazy? This is my internal <laughs> yum ad guy. I said, are you crazy? We are selling boatloads of chicken with bringing back this colonel. Of course we're not going to switch colonels. And then once I actually saw the ads and saw what they were going to do and how it was going to go meta and the idea we were going to make fun of ourselves for bringing back the colonel and stoke the fire on this conversation that had started, it was a no-brainer. And that mm-hmm. was really the, the birth of... The rotating colonels was this ad agency had this crazy idea, Wyden and Kennedy, and you know I rolled with it, and you know thank God we did because I think it was a big part of why we've had sustained success over time. Yeah. I think what's pretty interesting is that now, how many years are we into this campaign? I've lost track. Uh, we're now yeah. in a year five. So yeah, so it's year five, and you're still able to actually generate buzz with this particular campaign because last year you did Reba McIntyre. Yeah, and now you've got RoboCop, which I saw in your elevators on the way up, <laughs> which I've. It was taken aback, like, oh, wow, there's a giant Robocop right there. So, um, I, I mean, do you still see continued white space on this front? Or Yeah, you know, I think it's, we have to stay creative and stay unexpected, mm-hmm. right? So I think I think it becomes more of a challenge because, you know, every time you do something, it's already been done then, right? Yeah. So, you know, did people see us, you know, rebooting Robocop with the real, you know, Peter Weller voice mm-hmm. to play the, you know, Colonel Robocop? Like, no, of course not, right? Or a female colonel. You know, there's certainly tons of opportunity for more diverse colonels that we see out there. Um, but, you know, the one thing I can promise you is that we're not going to do things that are expected because that's when things get stale, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, you got to work hard to stay fresh and you got to be willing to take some risks. You know, great examples are every time, like, something's working, 
I don't want to. I don't want to run away from it because it's, it's growing sales. But at some point, we all know that we're going to hit a peak and it's mm-hmm. going to start going the other direction. And so you've got to have a feel for you know when do you move on to the next thing and when you don't. Sometimes you make mistakes and sometimes you you get it right. But at the end of the day, as long as you're learning and getting stronger and your team's getting stronger, you're you're going to be heading in the right direction. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about food innovation because I know you'd probably like to talk about that as well. Uh, my first question is, what took it? What took you so long to get chicken and waffles? That's a great question, actually. So um, we had been eating chicken and waffles for several years, mm-hmm. and it, so you you uh, recently experienced an innovation session here in uh, Louisville, uh, where we taste you know test products that we are considering to launch or to at least test. And so in those meetings, you know, every six months we were tasting some kind of version of chicken and waffles. And the problem was they all tasted really good. You're like, wow, that could really work. And, you know, democratizing chicken and waffles, which is um, a lot of people think it's from the South. Mm -hmm. Chicken and waffles is actually an invention in Harlem. And it was the, um, you you know it, but a lot of people don't. Uh, It was essentially the meal that jazz singers would eat when they got off at 2 a.m. And it was something between dinner and breakfast, Mm -hmm. right? It was chicken and waffles. Um, and the problem was operationally, we couldn't execute the waffle. So we'd eat the waffle. We'd man, this tastes great. We'd ask the food innovation guy, so how do we make it in the restaurant? And he'd tell us the process. And like, well, that's not even remotely executable, right? So, um, and it wasn't until uh, we challenged them to come up with some, a cook-to-order waffle that would taste like it was just made, um, did we crack the nut. So they figured that out, and we said, once we ate that, and we said, wow, we can go, right? So one of the things I've learned, I've been in the business now a little over five years, is if it's if you, if it may taste great in the boardroom or in our you know where we're sitting right now, but if we can't execute it in forty one hundred restaurants, mm-hmm. it's going to fail, right? Yeah. And so that's a lens that we now have in our food innovation teams is, you know, anybody can do X and make something you know taste great. But can you actually execute it in 4,100 restaurants? And if the answer is yes, we go. And if the mm-hmm. answer is no, then we continue to work on it, which is why took, well, chicken and waffles probably took three years wow. from the inception of the idea. Yeah. That's a, you know, that's a big challenge in a franchise business because you, you, have, um, you, know, you have all of these different operators, and they're responsible for sort of deploying the products that you develop. And it has to be simple enough for them to do it, um, while at the same time exciting enough to get people... On board, everybody's wanted. I mean, people have probably wanted chicken and waffles from KFC forever, um, since you know they started to become popular, and you know, so it's it, it takes a while for. That's a challenge in this business. Yeah, I mean, that's the balance is um, is you want things to be wow, wow customer, or wow value, whatever that wow is. Mm-hmm. That's often at odds with the other things that we have to innovate against, which is is it operationally executable? Is the is our franchisee partners going to make you know margin? You know, I always tell our guys. If we're not growing their margins with a new item, why the heck are they ever going to drive it, right, when they can just drive their existing products? So, you know, we have a lot of pressure on our teams. It's not just about making something that tastes great, but it's got to be within those guardrails of, you know, is it profit accretive or margin accretive? Is it operationally make sense? Does it fit in with, you know, how many pantry SKUs does it take up? Mm-hmm. And, you know, we can't have unlimited pantry SKUs in the back of these restaurants in order to manage inventories correctly. So you know, that's the magic of innovation. You probably see it all the time when you talk to other you know, of our competitors is anybody can innovate something in a boardroom. It's the real challenge is how do you take all those levers and create something that is not just a, a wow for the customer, but it's also a wow for our franchise partners that they can make money on and they can execute and be excited about. Mm-hmm. So we're, um, you know, what's, uh, 
you've been doing a lot of sort of regional flavors, and and uh, you've had uh, Nashville Hot and Georgia Gold, and you've been trying to you know be a lot more innovative. I mean, is that can you talk a little bit about what your just overall innovation strategy is? Yeah, absolutely. So we certainly. Um so we spent, we're in year, this will be year six of the turnaround. Mm-hmm. We've had five consecutive years of growth, which we're very proud of. Um, what we do know now is if we went another five years of growth, we want to deliver our decade of growth, we're going to have to have a whole lot more innovation than we had in the first five years. Um, it was very clear that we had some operational focus areas that we wanted to make sure we got stronger in. We obviously had to write the, write the DNA of the brand and understand what our North Star is. And we had to start remodeling the restaurants, which mm-hmm. we're doing a great job of. I think about 35% are now remodeled. Hmm. And so, you know, we just had our national convention with our franchisees. And the, one of the big uh, themes, or the biggest theme, was if we want to grow for the next five years and, you know, tackle all these challenges that are in QSR, we simply have to grow faster. There's lots of other things we got to do, but the number one thing we got to do is grow faster. And the way to grow faster is with some meaningful innovation. Yeah. Okay, so that's, that's kind of job one. The challenge for us is... How do you deliver all that innovation when you have the same you know, labor challenges that you had the previous year, you have the same cost pressures, if not a little bit of inflation than you had the previous year, and that's the challenge for us of how do we, how do we get after more innovation but do it in a lens that's going to grow the total P&L, you know, not just the top line. And so the, the innovation program that you're going to see from us are going to be on a couple different lenses. One is going to be about just super exciting things that you know maybe you don't eat them every day but like boy i've never seen that before so a great example of that is our cheeto sandwich mm-hmm. you know with our pepsico frito-lay partners you know came up with something that people are pretty excited about like we, i think we had over a billion impressions on that thing and we didn't really do any kind of active marketing of it it was literally we just put it i think in seven store seven test stores and, you know, the press actually picked up on it and then mm-hmm. the thing just caught wildfire. So I think you'll see some of that. I think you'll see this regional flavor thing, which is, you know, one of our challenges is young people want to try different things. And yet our core of our business was built on one single secret recipe of the 11 herbs and spices, right? That is a wonderful recipe and super delicious, right? But it's going to be the same, right? We're not going to make a new Coke, right? Mm-hmm. It's going to be, you know, 11 herbs spices going to be 11 herbs spices. So... How do you start differentiating with some new recipes that are not the secret recipe that creates excitement for the young people to come in and try our brand? So that's why you saw things like Nashville Hot and Georgia Gold and Smoky Mountain Barbecue. And Nashville Hot arguably was probably our most successful one. And the thing I'm proud about that one is I think if you go if you go to a Nashville chicken house, the way they make it is typically it's a special marination and they'll double bread it, they'll open fry mm-hmm. it, and then they'll dunk it in seasoned cooking oil, right? Well, our, our teams came back from Nashville. Like, we can do something like that. We can do it in the guardrails of what a franchisee can execute. So, you know, in our version, uh, we use our double-breaded extra crispy chicken. It's the same extra crispy chicken that we, that we make in the rest of our restaurant. And then we have our own seasoned oil that is applied after the chicken is cooked. And so it's very executionally friendly, and it's absolutely delicious. I don't know if you've ever had our Nashville hot chicken. Oh, yeah. It's a very good rendition of... Um, of the chicken you get in Nashville. Now, we don't have quite the, the, the spice levels that they have because we can have one flavor and not seven, but it's still a quite a delicious a delicious product that we're very proud of, right? Mm-hmm. So I think the regional flavors and the authentic regional flavors, I think you're going to see more of that. And then you're going to see us innovate on value. I mean, we've got to make sure that um, you know 40% of our customer base uh, will be defined as low income. And um, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken is a great treat for them. And so how do we keep the brand fresh for them 
in a way that still allows the franchisees to make a healthy margin, mm-hmm. uh, but keep price points that are accessible for those customers. And that's part. That's a big part of our job. It's not just about mm-hmm. creating wacky stuff that's exciting and brings people in, but every the everyday customer, our core customer that relies on us for a great special treat. How do we how do we cater to that? How do we mm-hmm. make sure they're excited and that they continue to get more and more value in our marketplace? Right, right. That, that's a that's a that's a pretty key group. Oh yeah. For the key with our space, and then being able to innovate in a way that gets that particular group excited is, is, has been a fairly big challenge of late. Um, I think your you know your sister brand Taco Bell I think does a fabulous. Yeah, job. I was gonna I was gonna share that. I think you're absolutely right. Like they you know they always think about their value. It's not just about a low price mm-hmm. and an item. It's about how do I go above and beyond to create just unbelievable you yeah. know exceptional value that you can't find anywhere else. I think our version of that is about completeness, right? Mm-hmm. About getting a complete meal um, at a price that is just unheard of, right? So our $5 fill-up, we now sell a quarter of a billion of them a year, roughly, a little more than that. Um, you know, you get a protein, you get a biscuit, you get a side, you get a drink, um, and it's all for $5. And we've been able to maintain that with our franchisees, and we've done a good job of you know, rotating items through that to make sure that we can continue to deliver healthy margins for our franchisees. But that's an example of something that's really worked. Another one that we recently did that I was very proud of in January was our $3 Famous Bowls. And mm-hmm. we created a little bit of news. We brought a spicy bowl in using our Nashville hot sauce, and we blew the doors off of that. I think we sold we sold the same number of bowls that we sold when we originally launched Famous Bowls like 10 years prior. Mm-hmm. So an exceptional win because we had a very sticky price point at a time where our core customer you know, needed some more value in their pocket, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, that's an example where at $3, it's like, okay, everybody can do $3, but our $3 was a complete meal. I mean, you got, you know, a pound of food was the claim in the ad for $3. I think that's a lot more than kind of what you'd get at a $3 value menu somewhere else, right? right? right. So, I mean, just like Taco Bell is always looking to say, I'm going to not just give you a value item, but it's going to be really special. Our version of that is about completeness and and, uh, something that you feel like you're not going to leave hungry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I want to ask you uh, about uh, development. Um, so you are now into year six. Uh, where you stand, I, I know that the goal is to get to unit count growth. Yeah. Um, sort of the last sort of benchmark, I think, if you will, to this brand's sort of turnaround. Where are you at and what do you expect for 2019 from that standpoint? Well, so that is a key benchmark on any turnaround. Like mm-hmm. you, see, you see it with you know, any, any of the QSRs that have a huge turnarounds. You've seen a market difference in their unit growth. Um, you know, I'm pleased to report last year was our best net new in over a decade. And we still lost stores versus a year ago, but we built 46 new ones. Mm-hmm. And we, we've been losing about 100 stores a year for the past 10 years. And last year, I think we were down 40 or 50. I can get you the exact number, right? So a market difference from where we've been. And then this year, our expectation is that we're actually going to build more stores than, than mm-hmm. we're closed. So... Um, you know, it's taken us about, you know, the first two years of the turnaround has really been about comp growth and getting the brand economics healthy, which we've done. The last couple of years has been putting some incentives in place to start building again. And now we've seen franchisees getting really good returns on those mm-hmm. incentives and the, and the new builds. You know, our new build um, is averaging, the PRAs are averaging considerably higher than our existing, like to the point where it's a no-brainer to, to build again, right? right? So I think as the franchisees see those economics and, pl- and those investments play out, I think that's when we're seeing this rapid escalation of, of the new builds. And I think this year will be our first year in, I think, over 15 years where we'll be net positive. Wow. 
That usually takes, um, I mean, it, my experience is that it takes a while, that that's always a, definitely a lagging indicator. Mm-hmm. And if you look at Domino's, I think Domino's took, people see that, I mean, they were comping like 10% plus a year at a ridiculous rate, and it still took them years yeah. to get to unit count growth. Uh, Burger King is another one where I think they only just recently started getting back to unit growth after after an f- even longer period. Um, Arby's was another one. It just it takes a while, I think, um, you know, you know, to get franchisees back into that mode of growing after a while. Yeah, you know, I agree with you. I think we've, uh, you know, right now, if you look in the industry, and you probably see this too, there's a lot of incentives out there to build. There's definitely a race to building right now. And we're no different. We have an industry. You know, this is my PSA. By the way, this podcast has been brought to you by KSC Development. <laughs> We're in industry-leading incentives. You know, please call my chief development officer, Brian Cahill, mm-hmm. after this call. Uh, but we know, just like just like a Burger King or some of our other competitors, we have industry-leading incentives mm-hmm. that I think are adding a little bit of gas to the fire on this thing. So, uh, you know, my hope it wouldn't be taking, you know, eight, ten years to get to that positive. You know, if we actually deliver this year, it'll be probably three and a half years on the, you know, when we actually started this in earnest. You know, even if we're close to that and we get it next year, that's still very aggressive in terms of the timeline. But I think the incentives are a part of it, right? Yeah. So you make it easier to get your payback quicker, you're on a brand on the way up, and you're getting some stronger PRAs when you build new stores because of the brand. And, you know, can we beat some of that timing you're talking about? I hope so. Yeah, yeah. So um, you might have heard about this uh, trend in the industry right now called delivery. Um <laughs> And uh, you, um, you know, your your parent company has a fairly sizable investment in in, in Grubhub. Um, uh, is uh, you know where are you guys at with delivery? You've, I'd imagine you guys would be fairly excited about that. Oh yeah. Maybe. So you know, as far as uh, you know, if a brand was made to to, to be delivered, it's mm-hmm. our brand, right? So you know, we're still one of the only QSRs that you actually when you when you take it home. You unpack it out of the packaging and you serve it on plates, right? So mm-hmm. our product and our packaging has already been designed to be transported, right? So we don't have that whole innovation stream. we got to figure out, like, you know, how are we going to transport French fries? We don't even have French fries, right? So the point is, is we're ready to go on delivery. We have this partnership with Grubhub, which essentially delivers us the technology back end as well as the last mile delivery, right? So right now, uh, we're in over half of the restaurants now have um, delivery and our plan is to get to about three quarters of restaurants by year end, and then our hope is that all restaurants will you'll be able to do mobile ordering and click and collect, even if you don't have, you know, delivery in your area. There's some rural locations that don't that can't, mm-hmm. you know, provide delivery. As far as like what's the business benefit to the customer, right? So we we know that our product can be delivered. We have a great partner that is helping us get this rolled out nationwide. Uh, what is the you know what is the customer pull? Um, you know, the biggest, you know, our CEO talks about it, Greg Creed will talk about it as, you know, this is going to be the next big invention since the drive-thru in terms of convenience, right? So we all know that, you know, the two vectors of, of why QSR has grown for all these decades and will continue to grow for future decades is convenience and value. And delivery offers incredible convenience that people have not seen before and are, and are used to now in other industries, right? So um, certainly the customer is there. We have a great partner. Our food is already designed to travel, and we already meet that kind of at-home meal replacement occasion. It's really about us getting after it and putting enough resource and dedicated effort to make sure that we see this through. And I think you're going to see that. I think in the back half of the year, you'll see a more, you know, we've been spending the last year really just putting the fundamentals in place 
to have uh, you know an e-commerce business, you know the performance marketing, all those things that are needed in order to blow out uh, uh, mobile ordering and delivery business. And you know once those things are in place, you know our friends at Taco Bell uh, this month launched this giant you know advertising campaign that you know, those ads were phenomenal. Yeah, I think fun. you'll see something similar from us. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're gonna. So do you expect it like later in the year, like maybe the back half, where you can start seeing some marketing towards delivery yeah i mean i can't give you you know specifics of that but like in the near future you i would expect to see us go much more public about our delivery once we have all the fundamentals and enough restaurants where we can make a real impact on our business is it um is it incremental do you think i mean is it adding business i mean is that uh, what you're seeing at this point well in the stores that we're in right now it's about three quarters incremental now obviously over time the incrementality will will wane mm-hmm. um the thing i'm excited about you know i was telling you like i'm a kind of a stickler on our innovation innovation guys on like margins and operationally mm-hmm. You know, uh, executable at the restaurant level. I don't think delivery is any different, right? So, you know, I am not going to allow us to enter into big agreements with delivery aggregators unless we think our franchisees can make a good margin on this thing. Mm-hmm. And Grubhub, you know, I think they see the value in us and the idea that we can get them into over four thousand restaurants and part of the Yum family. It's you know well over fifteen thousand restaurants um, just in the U.S. alone. Um, simply having access to them is a value to them, right? Mm-hmm. So we have a very special partnership that is, goes beyond just financial terms, but in terms of integrating their technology in the back of the restaurant, which then shortens you know delivery times, which I think will give us an advantage in our franchisees and advantage in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that deal between Yum and Grubhub was was uh, was a pretty big deal and and fairly innovative. It, you know, really. Not the type that you see at most companies haven't done anything like that. Um, seems to be fairly big advantage for you guys. Yeah, you know, the vision, and I, you know, I got to give Greg Creed, our CEO, you know, credit for this. You know, his vision was I want a delivery order to be, I want a franchisee to not care whether it's a delivery order or whether it's someone mm-hmm. coming to the store, right? Right. And that is a big aspiration because I think you know the fees and the charges that are entailed. Um, these delivery aggregators and you know while it's probably not all the way to that point because obviously our partners have to make some money too um, it certainly is what we believe is industry leading and that's going to allow us to accelerate delivery because the franchisees are excited about it right mm-hmm. and I think if you ever talk to any of our franchisees and said what do you think about delivery it's like they're eager to get advertising turned on because they want to see it explode because in terms of the, the margins and the incrementality the economics are there at least in you know KSC and Taco Bell so um, now it's just a matter of time of getting the work done and right. getting the getting the product launched. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my, my sense of this, and talk, I've talked to a lot of franchisees, and, and you know, they generally aren't against delivery because they see. I mean, they see the same things that we all see, which is this is how people want to have their food. Yeah. I don't understand it, frankly. I am not a delivery customer, and I still eat in restaurants. I'm a dinosaur. I'm an old guy. But um, you know, where where the challenge I think in delivery is is that is that oftentimes brands have accepted uh, commissions that are probably too high. And then that profitability issue, be, you know, becomes a real issue. And, um, you know, and so being able to avoid that, any restaurant company that can avoid that is, is going to win in that win that battle going forward, I think. Yeah, you know, the, the lens I've taken, both as CMO and now as president, is, I, you know, if something's not sustainable for our franchisees, mm-hmm. I don't have a lot of interest in spending a lot of time on it. So... You know, I think, you know, before Yomic struck the Grubhub deal, I think we could have gone to, you know, the open marketplace and gotten some of the terms that you just talked about, and we could have grown our business, but it would have been at the expense of the franchisees' margins, and that's not acceptable to me. Mm-hmm. Like, 
Now, I'm a firm believer that um, in order for us to, to win long term, we both have to have a sustainable relationship. So the franchisees need to make money. We need to make money. And if that's ever out of balance in the short term, something's going to give, right? Mm-hmm. If, you know, if we're making money and the franchisees are not making money, I think we know what happens when that happens. And if the franchisees are making money, but Yum's not making money, then I'll probably be replaced. So, right. that, so that's not going to be sustainable either, right? <laughs> The, the, the name of the game in this in this industry is we've got to find solutions that benefit both of us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have the most amazing franchisee leadership on KSC right now. I think they understand that, too, which is why we have a good relationship. Right, right. Yeah, and that's, you know, I think that a key element, we didn't really talk about this, but the key element was that Yum! Brands investment going back a few years where, you know, Yum! Brands, you know, put some money basically where its mouth is and invested in this brand, which is another, you know, sort of advantage that you guys get in, in being part of that company. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The, you know, the, we call it the acceleration agreement. Yeah. Um, and Yum invested in, you know, it was, a, it, was a, it was an amazing time where, um, you know, our leadership at the time sat down with the franchisee leadership and said, what are the things that we need to do together to get this brand out of this funk? Yeah. Right? And it had, you know, it was a very comprehensive program that included marketing and operations and you know, revamping the estate, you know, asset remodels. And we took that package to, to Yum, and we got it done, right? Mm-hmm. And that acceleration agreement, it's basically, it's basically ended. In fact, I gave an update to the franchisees at our convention this year. And for the most part, most of the franchisees can look us all in the eye and say, my business is much more valuable today than it was four years ago when, we, when, when you guys broached the acceleration agreement at the convention four years ago. So... Uh, very, I think we've all been very pleased with the results, but I will say we're very hungry for more growth. Mm-hmm. And with the challenges that we have in the industry right now, if we don't start growing faster, you know, it's going to be tough sledding. So we'll be right back where we started five years ago. So I think there's definitely a, um, a healthy uns- unsatisfaction with the status quo, and mm-hmm. we're going to continue to do things that people haven't seen. Well, I think that is a good uh, place to end it. Sir, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast this week. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, you know, I hope, uh, I, hope this was, I hope this was helpful to your audience. It was fantastic. Another restaurant chain that has used marketing a lot more effectively of late has been Chipotle Mexican Grill. That's not much of a surprise. Chipotle CEO is Brian Nickel, the former boss at Taco Bell, who's brought in as much for his marketing chops as anything else and Nickel brought in another Taco Bell alum in Chris Brandt to be the CMO. Chipotle has always been able to get attention, but its new marketing regime has shifted attention more recently away from food safety and back onto its products and technology. They've even added new menu items without actually adding new ingredients. That came earlier this year when Chipotle started offering new lifestyle bowls. The bowls are aimed at mobile and online customers and feature bowls for customers on lifestyle diets such as keto, paleo, whole 30, double protein, vegetarian, and vegan. But here's the thing. Chipotle's always had that ability. The beauty of the company's customizable menu is that customers can make bowls or burritos to fit whatever diet they're on. They've always had these ingredients. Chipotle under Nickel and Brandt simply gave it a name, targeted it at customers on one of the growing number of lifestyle diets, and began marketing it all. The marketing style has been perhaps the biggest change at Chipotle under new management. Whether this ultimately translates into new customers remains to be seen, but sales so far have shown promise.
And that's it for this edition of A Deeper Dive. Next week, editor Pat Colby talks with Technomic about kids' menus. A Deeper Dive was edited by Christine Cawthon. Artwork by Nico Hines and Sarah Stewart. Contributors to this podcast include Pat Colby, Sarah Rushworth, Peter Romeo, and Heather Lally. You can find this and other episodes on our website at www.restaurantbusinessonline.com backslash article backslash podcast. You can also find them on iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. I'm Jonathan Mays, your host and podcast producer. Thank you for listening.